Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Thinking about our daily lives, where would we be without people who excelled in the trades? Individuals who are masters in carpentry, auto mechanics, hairdressing, cooking and plumbing, only to name a few, are an essential part of our daily lives. Training for excellence in the trades is not only critical to all of us, but also to the individuals who want to have fulfilling careers in the trades. To discuss the importance of training for excellence in the trades and how we can make that a reality, I'm joined by an expert in vocational education who advocates for excellence in the trades. Dr. Susan James Relly is an Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the Department of Education at Oxford University. She is also the Director of the Skills, Knowledge and Organizational Performance Research Center, better known as SCOPE. Susan's entire career has been in education in various forms. She taught in secondary schools in Australia and England before starting her academic career. Her research interests include vocational education and training systems and policy, vocational excellence, and work-based learning. Her interest in vocational education developed while teaching in secondary schools, where she recognized the need and importance of vocational subjects for students not interested in a purely academic route. Thank you very much, Susan, for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to specialize uh, your academic work on vocational and craft education? Oh, goodness. It was it was even before I began my academic work. I was a secondary school teacher teaching in various schools in Australia and just realized that not all of our students were destined for higher education and, and nor should they be. But what were what were their options? What were the alternatives? What was the the route for them that was going to be as productive and as good for them as as higher education? And it really got me thinking about the vocational education and training route. And and we began to offer our students in their final years of high school the opportunity to get some qualifications from in Australia. It's the equivalent of further education here in the UK. It's called TAFE, Technical and Further Education. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were offering them Hospitality One qualifications that enabled them to then enter the the labor market with some work-ready qualifications. You know, after teaching for a few years and, and deciding to go back to university and do my master's, that's what I wanted to frame my work around, um, particularly for my doctoral work, that focus on really high-quality technical education for our young people. In those examples, when you were seeing your students trying to decide what to do next and university was really the main option, does anything stand out to you on did they not see the traits as an option? Yeah, I mean, I think I think many of them did. You know, apprenticeship was the other option, but there are many more things besides higher education and apprenticeship. And the apprenticeships that were on offer were rather limited depending on, you know, perhaps if their, their fathers owned a business and they could move into it or, mm. you know, mum had done an apprenticeship. But it was somehow always seen as lesser 
And I didn't feel that it was. And I wanted to make sure that we were putting the right emphasis on both routes of education as being equally viable, not that one was a second choice to the other. Absolutely. That's such an important thing. What do you wish people really understood about trade and vocational and craft education? What do you think is really missing? Just how highly skilled it is and and that it's it's multi-skilled as well. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, Many of the occupations, uh, trade and and vocational uh, occupations, you know, the level of math that they're doing and just all sorts, you know, people skills and variety of people that they work with, it's phenomenal. And I wish people valued it. I mean, they they just take for granted that they get their, their hair cut or their toilet works until something goes wrong. Exactly. And, and then they realize, you know, just how important these skills are for the economy. And I wish it didn't take something to go wrong for people to actually value really good craft work and craftsmanship and the high level of skill. And, you know, I've been working quite a lot with, with World Skills UK over the last decade and a half, nearly two decades. And when you see the level at which these young people are working at, it's just phenomenal. You know, they're, they're making pieces of furniture and working in industries where we're talking about less than a millimeter tolerance. You know, the, the high level of skill and knowledge that they're using is it would be as high as what some of our undergraduate students are working at, if not higher. I just wish there was more value placed on it. Absolutely. It does take years and years of practice and skill and knowledge and creativity in a lot of places. Mm. You know, I mean, it is so true. Everyone should think about how hard it is to find the right person to get these things done. And it's because the right people take a lot of time and a lot of skill and a lot of training to really be excellent at their craft, which is something that should be celebrated a lot more. Can you tell me a little bit about World Skills UK? You you spoke, you just mentioned it for people who don't know what it is. So every, everyone would be very familiar with the Olympics happens every four years and you've got people who are the best of the best in their in their sport world skills are events that happen every two years and they're the best of the best of young people aged 18 to 24 in um, I think it's about 56 different skill areas or occupations now Um, and it's a competition run very similar to the olympics but it's it's the skills olympics the young people with the most points awarded gold then silver and bronze in hairdressing floristry hospitality plumbing carpentry i mean you you name it there are 56 different skills and i think that's increasing and there are over 60 countries now involved in it and these young people train to be the absolute best in their in Hmm. their craft or trade happens all around the world and the next world skills competition is going to be held in shanghai in 2022 was it's normally on an odd year should have happened this year but um, because of COVID it was postponed and it's just phenomenal hundreds thousands of young people you know competing on the world stage to be the best in their skill and so we've been working with them to try and understand what vocational excellence looks like to have a top-down effect thinking about you know what vocational excellence is and how we can feed that into the wider system you know vocational education training systems around the world are consistently tinkered with and governments of whatever flavor you know Mm. feel like it's the one area of education that they can constantly policy change Mm. and yet we've got evidence and and examples of these 
young people doing absolutely brilliant work. And so we've, we've wanted to bring that to the fore to highlight just how important TVET, technical vocational education and training, is to the economy, to the skills economy, and that for a thriving economy, it takes a skills economy and a knowledge economy to work together. Absolutely. And such a satisfying career as well. You know, everyone has something that they're inclined to and interested in. You know, it might be in the trades, it might be something else. But to find that and to know that you can really excel on a world stage, compete with others in your chosen profession is a really fantastic thing and something that should be promoted in schools. I mean, I'm sure most schools don't know about the world skills competitions, but wouldn't it be wonderful for people in high school to to find out about that? It is still quite a, a well-kept secret. I mean, WorldSkills UK, so each, each country that's involved with the WorldSkills competitions and WorldSkills International has a country designated organization and in the UK we've got World Skills UK and prior to the pandemic they had these amazing skills live shows at the NEC in Birmingham mm. where you could actually go and see competitions being held they would either be national or regional competitions and Thursday mornings were I, I always liked going on a Thursday morning because they were the days designated for schools and lots of primary schools in the areas went and mm. students could have a go, actually That's have amazing. a go at um, these skills. And it was wonderful. I remember seeing this, this young girl, she was maybe, oh, I don't know, seven or eight, um, actually having a go at bricklaying and another young oh. girl having a go at plumbing and another yeah. young lad having a go at hairdressing and, and mm. others at floristry. And it, it really was also helping to break down, down gender barriers. Right. Um, but just to give young people an idea. And, and secondary schools were going as well, although there is mm. some research that shows by then it's, it's sometimes too late around mm. career choices. Um, mm. But just letting young people know all the different options that are out there. Absolutely. I think is really important. And it's so interesting because in having something like that, world skills, competitions, and people, especially teachers, telling their students about it is a really fantastic way of inspiring. We all know that in the Olympics, every time a country does well in a certain sport, that country actually has an uptake in that sport. And it really does inspire young people. So this is also a phenomenal way of doing that. In the show notes, there will be a link to world skills competitions that hopefully people will take a look at. So what can you tell me about the ways that trade schools are working well? You said that there's a lot of shifts in policy and different, but what are the ways that it's, it's really working well? So here in the UK, most of them work through um, further education colleges rather than trade schools. The best examples, and, and there's a, a lot of really great examples throughout the UK of where tutors are working really closely with their students, understanding mm -hmm. what they can achieve, where they hope to go, uh, and just bringing that real world of work into the classroom. We, we wrote a report looking at examples of where tutors were doing amazing work. And this, it was based on, so within world skills, the people who take the young people through and train them are called world skills experts. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's not a full-time role. It's a, a part-time role. And they also work as tutors in the FE colleges, some in, in private training providers. And there is some skills which are learnt in universities as well, such as um, jewellery design or CAD work, mechanical robotics, I think it is. And just looking at what they did, how did they take their knowledge and skill that they'd learnt in the world skills, working at that, you know, world-class level back into their classrooms. And it's called good people in a, in a flawed system. But it was amazing the way that what they would do is take the, you know, the world skills standard specifications and 
map it onto the curriculum to show their young people, okay, this is what you need to do to do the job. This is what it would look like to, you know, work at world skills level. How can we incorporate the two and, and move their students along and really stretch and challenge them? So there's, there's amazing good practice. I mean, our, our FE colleges in the UK, I think, do phenomenal work under huge pressures, under-resourcing, pressures on teachers, FE tutors, lecturers, but the, the work that they're doing is amazing and they're inspiring their students every day. Absolutely. And what are some other examples? That's a really good example to show what excellence looks like in a particular field. But what are some other examples of the way that they're really teaching well? I think um, they really understand their students. They take the time to understand their students. I think they're able to bring employers into the classroom mm-hmm. um, and really bring that world of work in to understand what employers need right. um, so that the students are ready to go into employment and, and do the best job that they can. Mm. So I think it's about forming a holistic student, looking at that the student holistically rather than, you know, focusing on, well, they need maths at X level or they need, you know, why it's, it's about understanding what it takes. It's about developing that, that professional identity, that occupational identity is what does it take to be a carpenter or a hairdresser Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, oh, well, we've got to have three A's at maths or something. Right. And understanding what that, what their training will look like in practice, Mm. I'm sure is very, very motivating for the students as well, which is of course really good practice. So that that's, that's fantastic. You already touched on this, that students, when they're being advised on where to go, there does seem to be a tiered system of university is first, and then we look at trades or craft schools, which is very unfortunate because they're just different. When people are advising students, what do you think that they should really be looking for? And, and maybe what kind of questions should they be asking? I mean, I think first and foremost, they need to make sure that they're getting rid of their own biases before they advise students. Right. I mean, that there's been a huge amount of research done on recruitment and selection and how recruiters often recruit in their own mirror image. So when you're giving advice and guidance on careers, you need to make sure that you're not pushing your own prejudices and, and, your, and the route that you know, um, because a lot of careers counsellors and advisors have probably been to university as well. And so I think it's about educating them, their selves as to uh, what actually is out there, that they don't go to the default of, of higher education, which I think is one of the, the biggest problems is because they just don't really understand what's out there. And so unless students get to go to something like the skills show or have access to someone who is in the trades, they're not really going to understand all the options out there. They hear, you know, various things like doctor and nurse and teacher because that's, you know, people that they come into contact with every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about thinking about the people that they wouldn't necessarily con- come into contact with every day. So I think that would be one of the first steps is making sure that any advice and guidance that's given isn't just a mirror image of your own experience. But I think, you know, I think part of the reason that the FE college tutors are so successful is because they take the time to understand what the student's interests are. You know, it's not the default of kind of going into those occupations that they know about. It's it's about well, what what interests the student and therefore what occupations can develop from those interests, you know, whether it be something on the really artistic creative side, something on the more scientific side, although both of those 
overlap a lot. And I, th I think that's part of the problem is it, it becomes this either or rather than thinking about things on a, on a spectrum. Mm, definitely. And also there's this issue of when people ask children, what do they want to be? They're asking about a career. What do you want to be? And naming that career, you know, it's very difficult for a young person to know what these careers actually mean or what's out there. But to actually ask, what do you like to do and what makes you happy and what do you do more most often? And it would really open up that conversation, wouldn't it? Mm, I think so. Yeah. Things like, you know, thinking about a set of skills and knowledge mm -hmm. uh, rather than just one dimensional, like an, an occupation. Um, right. taking into account that actually the skills and knowledge that we develop over a lifetime can probably be used in a variety of different occupations. Yeah, definitely. What do you see as the key problems for why vocational education is often not the first or equal choice given to students? So you said one is that those advising students are often coming from their own perspective and their own experience. Uh, the careers are not necessarily exposed as much as they are. People don't come in contact with them. But in the schooling system, what do you think, or maybe in the policies that the governments are creating, what, what do you think are some of the issues? I mean, I, th I think in the UK, there are a number of different things happening. One is we still have a class system mm -hmm. um, that is um, very prominent. We have had expansion, mass expansion of higher education, uh, which means a lot of vocational occupations and and courses are now done in universities so it's seen to be a university occupation rather than or a graduate occupation rather than that one might have been more vocational i think we have a lot of politicians and policymakers who will only ever have gone to higher education hmm. so they themselves won't understand the further education or the technical vocational education and training route and, and people, I think, are often scared of things that they don't understand or know about. And so I think it's about breaking down those barriers, those barriers to entry into vocational occupations. But I do think a lot of it stems from um, class systems. And the interesting issue in that is that there's the misconception that if you go to university, you will have a higher salary, you will have a better life, which is a huge misconception because it's really not actually true there's so many people who have gone to trade school or a craft school and right off the bat make a higher income than some who have gone to university it really doesn't equate one being higher than the other no it doesn't equate at all partly because you know a lot of apprenticeships can start at 16 which mm -hmm. means they're earning long before their graduate counterparts and you know there, there's been a lot of talk about the graduate premium of being you know around hundred thousand over a lifetime well mm. if you break that down it's not a hundred thousand per year it's over a lifetime so over a 40-year <laughs> working period you're talking about an extra two and a half thousand pounds a year and that's only in certain occupations yeah i think there's sort of been this thing floating around that if you go to university you'll earn more but that's just not the case partly because of you know mass expansion of higher education that we're talking about you've got a finite set of jobs which means there has to be a trickle down the occupational hierarchy. Exactly. So for instance, we did some work, some research actually quite a few years ago now that I think about it, looking at real estate agents and how that occupation had been graduatized. It had always been an occupation that you could enter after school with good school qualifications, but then all of a sudden, because they could employ graduates because there was a you know, a surplus of graduates, they were, and it became a graduate occupation. Now the skills mm -hmm. and knowledge haven't changed, 
the, the occupation itself hasn't changed in becoming a graduate occupation in terms of the knowledge and skill required. It's still exactly the same. It's mm. just that you can employ more graduates to do the job. And the salary certain di- certainly didn't change. You know, the base salary was, well, it wasn't even enough for, grad- for graduates to start paying back their loans. You know, so I think there has been this misnomer around about graduate occupations providing more in terms of income that has not always worked out in the way that people had hoped. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. So what do you see as the best way to bring more vocational and craft aspect to the education system? I think schools have a lot on their plates already. I think a lot of this starts in the home, starts with conversations between parents and kids and, you know, um, the expectations that parents place on children. Yes. You know, if, you've, if you're university educated, you'll expect your kids to go to university, but maybe that's not the best route for them. And so I think it's, a, it's those conversations that start at home is thinking about, well, what would you like to do? What's the best route in order to get there? You know, so if, if a young person wants to own their own business and, and it might be floristry, then going to university isn't going to help them with that, you know, actually getting experience of, of being a florist and then getting experience of working in retail and running a business is what they need. They don't necessarily need to go to university. So I think it's those conversations about, you know, what do you want to do and where do you want to end up rather than the expectation of the parents of where um, young people will actually go. And I'm, I'm very conscious of it with my own boy. He's four and he's, we've been reading lots of books and all the rest of it. And, you know, he, he told me the other day he wanted to be an astronaut. Then the day after we'd read a book on, on different animals. And then he said he wanted to be an ostrich. Okay. Uh, you know, he, he's only four, he's got no idea, but I want to keep having these conversations with him. And, you know, then he said he wanted to be an ostrich because he liked the fact of the, the feathers. Like, well, what other things have feathers and what else can you do? And yeah. yeah, it's just about the conversations that you can have and not, not limiting him thinking, you know, he sees me as a teacher and him thinking, well, that's then the only option for him. Right. No, that's such an important thing because it does, as you said, it does start at that age with the parents because what you read and also what's in the books, because, you know, astronauts are in the books but is a carpenter, is a jewelry maker, are those represented as well? And, and it does have a big impact. I mean, there's certainly people who have, you know, become adults and are in a certain career that they've dreamt of since they were a child because they were exposed to it when they were a child. We we were reading this book the other night. My husband took Gabriel to the library and he, he chose this book and, and it was Humpty Dumpty and Mm -hmm. uh, Humpty Dumpty wanted to become a boiled egg. Okay. And there was all these other nursery rhyme characters saying, no, 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 think out of the box. You don't want to just, you know, you don't want to be a boiled egg. What else can you be? You know, and and little Jack Horner had said he wanted to be a, a hairdresser and someone else said that they wanted to be a street cleaner and someone else said that they wanted to be um, a plumber and someone else said, I don't know. And, and that's then Humpty Dumpty said he'd like to go to the moon and be an astronaut. And I think that's where Gabriel got it from. But I mean, the story actually had quite a terrible ending. Jack and the Beanstalk slapped him on the back and said, that's it, think out of the box. But, of course, Humpty fell off the oh, wall and no. ended up becoming an omelette. Um, <laughs> as it turns out, I'm reading this book and I'm thinking, this is great, all these different occupations and all the rest yeah. of it. But, um, yeah, Humpty became an omelette. <laughs> Sometimes it is the way life works out. You never know. Yeah. So. I mean, he wasn't a boiled egg. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's really, yeah, it's very interesting how these do have an impact on children and, uh, and those conversations in the home 
are very important because so many parents do say you have to go to university and that's what is acceptable. But what do you think governments can do to help change this narrative and help change this perspective? I mean, I think I think partly they need to visit these institutions that they're responsible for policy for and funding. Mm. They need to understand the amount of funding that's needed. They're consistently uh, underfunded institutions, educational institutions that, you know, 50% of our young people go to. They, politicians need to stop tinkering. I mean, they, they start from a deficit model, of, you know, what's wrong with vocational education training? Why aren't more young people going into it rather than thinking, well, there's some really good practice here. How can we build on that? And, and thinking about where the, the stories come from, the narratives for young people to want to go to higher education. And a lot of it comes from the political rhetoric. Um, the policy rhetoric and you know I think sometimes it's so much a case of do as I say not as I do with with government and policy and and I would just invite our politicians and policymakers to actually go into these institutions and try and understand them Um, I mean they've all they've all been to school and they've been to university but how many of them can say that they've gone into a further education college to really see what is actually happening what teaching and learning is happening what knowledge and skill development is happening how are um, FE college tutors and lecturers engaging with young people Um, what are the young people doing I mean just looking at the things that they're building and making and seeing and learning you know they I think they'd be embarrassed um, if they were asked, have you been into one? What do you actually know about it? I mean, we'd get some spiel, which we do. Yes. Um, I would encourage them to actually go into these institutions just to see the really great work that is happening. Yeah, no, that is that is very important. And as you said, because the funding needs to be there for quality education. It cannot just exist unless it's being focused on and funded. So for it to be quality training, there has to be a focus on it from government, from policy. So that's a really good point. I, it, it's true. I haven't ever heard of a politician going into a, a trade or craft or vocational school, but really good point. So you have said that many pressures exist in further education, which counteract an approach to teaching and learning aimed at excellence rather than competence. So can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it stems from the way that assessment systems have been developed particularly in TVET, where it's sort of a, a pass-fail or a competent, not yet competent. In schools and, and universities, we have a grading system that allows students to see the progression that they're making. You know, mm-hmm. they get a C, well, what does it take to be a B? Whereas you don't necessarily have that. And it's become quite tick box in further education. And I think when you go into further education colleges and you see these great examples, it's the tutor saying, okay, well, this is what you do to become competent, this is what you need to do to become excellent. And let's see where on that spectrum from competence to excellence we can get you. I mean, not every student can receive an A plus, you know, in every subject. I mean, some students do, but not all students do. And so it's really about the tutors allowing the students to work out where they fit on that spectrum. What are the skills they need to develop to move from competence to excellence? And I think the assessment system doesn't necessarily allow tutors to do that in the most easiest of ways. I think also the curriculum is so specified, you know, you you need to do A, B and C. And this is employers constant complaint is, well, then why can't they do X, Y and Z as well? 
you know, and, and it's because teachers just don't have the time to take the students through everything. So I think teachers and tutors know their subject. Letting them actually teach rather than sort of just tick box exercise, uh, I think would be a, a big way to see some improvement. So that it's too regimented, you you said, that the curriculum is too regimented and saying, okay, you must do this, this and this rather than... Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, um, one of the best examples I've ever seen is, is this carpentry tutor. And he was amazing. And he, he would show the students, you know, this is what you've got to do according to the curriculum to, you know, do particular types of uh, wood joins and all the rest of it. And then show them that, you know, this is what you need to do in order to be considered excellent and just taking them through it. And, and he did that because he worked really long hours and stayed behind class and all the rest of it. He couldn't do it if he just tried to get it done in the, the very hmm. short amount of time that, that he had. So it was all, it was him giving his personal time, but he was just so invested in, his, in making sure that his students became the best they could possibly be that, that he didn't see it as extra work. You know, it was part and parcel, but uh, it took a lot out of him. And I think he shouldn't necessarily have to do it in his personal time. Like Absolutely. You know, being allowed to actually teach is hugely important. And is that a restriction on the amount of time that's allowed or is what, what is the restraint? Well, I, you know, they've got a curriculum that has been designated and they've got to try and get through it. It's not necessarily what students need or want to learn in a modern workplace. And so they're not able to necessarily broach some of the the more interesting things they're trying to just get through the prescribed curriculum rather Mm. than you know like a history teacher would engage students in a conversation that that would move through and and of course at that at the risk of of not meeting all the stipulated criteria and learning outcomes but Mm. it's that conversation that students are going to remember that took them and allowed them to develop empathy for a historical figure, for example. And it's the same with the carpentry. It's about giving students time to, you know, as as this tutor said, he said, you know, they need to, they need to understand the the grains of wood, not just the types of wood, you know, and it's about that extra time that that you can do that rather than just saying, well, and then the way that different pieces of wood interact, different types of, um, you know, oak versus ash versus uh, mahogany. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. That's really interesting and and so important, as you said, because the assessment and as well as the curriculum, it's very binary. It's either you don't know carpentry or you do know carpentry. But of course, anybody who's had anything, any experience with any profession, you know that there are some people who are amazing at it and some people who are not, who are just not very good at it. You know, that goes for a dentist, for anyone the point is that you need to actually build that into the curriculum that actually you should be aiming for excellence and progression. As you said, the assessment criteria really reflect those values, uh, which is really interesting. I didn't realize that. So from your research, where do you think we are headed in terms of vocational and craft education? You know, we've got so many things going on in the world at the moment. Aims for net zero and we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Here in the UK, we've had Brexit. There's been a lot of talk and rhetoric around the knowledge economy, and I think we need to move it forward to bring in a conversation around the skills economy as well and just the importance. I mean, if you you think about the vaccine, you know, these great minds developed the vaccine, but it was in a laboratory where you need to have technicians as well. And, And it's about how the knowledge economy and the skills economy can work together and, and the importance that can be placed on the skills economy, which is where I think we need to, to head to really 
get an understanding of just how important technical and vocational education and training is. So what do you hope will happen? I mean, this is the outcome, but what do you hope will be the steps that should be happening? From your research, what do you see as the next steps that could be taken? I hope that governments will realise the importance of technical and vocational education and training and not just, you know, talk about it, but actually do something about it, start Mm -hmm. to resource um, the further education route and technical and vocational education and training, both in terms of actual money, funding, but also in terms of the importance in the narrative that they talk about and not just sort of lip service, which will then hopefully feed into into society and, and people actually thinking that, you know, the trades are important. Arts and crafts and trades are really important. We, we wouldn't survive without them. We need to be talking about them and hold them in the same esteem as we do our doctors, even our football players, you know, it's crazy. Yes, absolutely. That is so true. And, and seeing the result of really amazing people in the trades, we do have more and more of this culture of seeing the chefs and the amazing things that they do in the kitchen, but that should happen in a lot more diverse professions. And certainly that would be important. That's very interesting and really good points that you shared. Thank you very, very much. And before we end, I like to ask if you have a recommendation for something to read or watch, something that you think is interesting in this field for people to to follow up on. Well, I think I think you know just the general population should be looking out for world skills competitions. Um, a book, The Craftsman by Richard Sennett, is always a good one. I think we need to understand better issues around social mobility and different routes into education and training. I'm just reading Danny Dorling's Injustice. It's um, He wrote it quite a few years ago now, but um, finding that really interesting. Is that about the different fields, different types of professions? It's just about the injustices in society and particularly okay. um, he, he has a section on education and training, but just right. the, just, it, it makes you question your own assumptions as to what you think about the way we maneuver in the world. Well, those sound very interesting and, uh, and definitely on topic. So thank you very much for sharing that. And thank you so much for sharing your insights about a really important topic that I think is really important for parents to hear, for students to hear, but for teachers as well. And of course, government. So it's, it's something that everyone needs to pay more attention to. Thank you very much for sharing your insights, Susan. Well, thanks for, for chatting with me, Kinga. It's been a pleasure.